Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Uh, together, my friend Anthony, Paul, and I are going to be discussing the subject of agreements in the uh, gas industry. Tony is an energy policy and strategy advisor with over 40 years of oil and gas industry experience holding technical and commercial roles in operations, management, and leadership across the ENP value chain. He has worked with governments, state-owned entities, and major international corporations in a range of countries. Tony holds a BSc honors in geology from Imperial College in London and an MSc in geophysics from the University of Houston, Texas, the United States. I simply know him as my friend. Tony, welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. Thank you, Sheila. It's always a pleasure to be to work with you and to talk with you. So thanks for inviting me. Lovely. So I thought given your, your depth of knowledge of especially the gas industry, uh, that you could help us understand how these uh, development agreements and others are structured in the area. But first, you know, we speak of uh, gas and then others speak of LNG. Can you tell us when we say gas, do we mean LNG and what is LNG and how does it give, differ from other gases in the energy space? Sure. So LNG is the acronym liquefied natural gas. Simply put, it says natural gas. And as we know, gases are things that are like air, vapors, that we can't contain it easily. LNG is natural gas that is liquefied through cooling to very low temperatures, minus 160 degrees centigrade. So simply put, Sheila, it's an answer to your question. Simply put, liquefied natural gas, LNG, is natural gas chilled to minus 162 degrees centigrade. And in doing so, it's then the volume is reduced to one six hundredth of the original volume. It means that liquid can now be transported long distances containers that are very much like thermos flasks, insulated flasks, that can keep it cold and transported long distances, which you couldn't do with pipeline, for instance. And by long distances, I mean across oceans. And the, by shrinking the volume, you can use, move a lot more in a small space. It's easier to transport, and therefore it's easy to trade. And as you know, commodities companies make a lot of money by trading, by using you know using the, the volumes they own to get the best price they can when they can. Long answer, Sheila, but I hope it answers the question you had in mind. Yes, of course, it's very it's very very helpful because we make assumptions about these things and we use the words, and they mean very little. Now, uh. Uh, you, you've already, in your definition, helped us appreciate that actually there's a, a similarity in uh, molecular structure, but also the, the manner in which uh, the hydrocarbons, in this case being uh, gas and oil, are formed. Let, let's come to the commercial space and, and very briefly say, what are the similarities then uh, between the way agreements for developing oil deposits and gas deposits. Uh, what are the similarities when we think about how we structure the agreements between those two hydrocarbons? Let's uh, go there, please, Tony. Sure. The agreements are still very, very similar. There's very little distinction 
inland gas agreements, except for one important part. Now, the agreements cover many areas. They cover the whole life cycle of exploring and finding, then putting in infrastructure and wells in place to get the oil and gas out to the ground, which is called development, and then producing it over time. Importantly in those agreements are the commercial terms. The commercial terms speak to the, how the, the, the price at which the product is sold is determined. Because if these things are traded, there can be some opaqueness around the actual value of it. And it also speaks to how the revenue that is generated from the sale of these products, how it's shared between the owner of the mineral rights, the owner of the, pop, of the oil under the ground, and the operator, the investor who takes it out. So yeah. those are some of the key conditions, you know, the, how it's operated, what is done, and how the benefits are shared. Sure. Uh, you've said a mouthful, and I'm going to ask you to uh, slow it down for us, and, and, and let's try and deal with uh, the issues in sound bites and, and assume, uh, as you are, that you're speaking to somebody like me who's not very vast in the issues. So you speak of a life cycle. Let, let's just go there. In uh, guest development terms, what does this concept mean of a life cycle? So, so oil and gas, as I mentioned earlier, are below the ground, kilometers below the ground sometimes. Somebody has to figure out where it is. And that exercise of figuring out where it is is what is called the exploration phase, looking for it. And that might include seismic surveys, geophysical surveys, drilling wells. Once you've done that and drilled the well, then you move on to the next stage. I found something. The question is, is it commercial? So I have to do some more work which may mean drilling additional wells to see how far this, this reservoir extends. This thing I've found, how far does it extend? How big is it? You know, so the next step is called the appraisal phase. And if I've gone through those two phases and I determine, hang on, now I have determined this is big enough, I can produce it. I now have to put in place the mechanism to get it out to the ground. And that is a complex set of projects that include drilling wells, putting the facilities on the surface, because when an oil and gas come up from the below the, the earth, they bring up sand with them, they bring up water, they bring up maybe combined together oil and gas. So they need to be separated. You don't want to put sand in a pipeline that is corrosive. So you separate them on the surface, you take the water out, but you don't want to transfer water long distance. It's a waste of time and money. And you want to separate oil and gas for safety reasons, for other types of reasons to transport it. So there's separation, and then you have to treat those facilities. So there's a whole thing called development. Whole phase, designing and building the infrastructure to do all that and the wells. And once you've designed that, build them, that's it, to the development phase, go to the next phase, which is producing it, maintaining the operations for safety, treating new wells, uh, decline in production, and so on. So there's the exploration, the appraisal, the development, and then the production phase, and that's where revenue starts to come in. But ultimately, the, the fields decline production and we come to the end of their life. And at that point, you have to return the, the seafloor or the, the land surface to its original state. You have to remove all the equipment that you put in there, make sure the wells under the ground are safely plugged so they don't have explosions of gas and oil remaining in the ground. And that's the abandonment or decommissioning phase. 
So the life cycle starts with exploration, to appraisal, to development, to production, and then decommissioning. The mm. That's what I mean by the life cycle. That's it, yeah. So so basically, we, we take a view when we do the initial assessment uh, that we think there is so much gas and we think it will require this level of infrastructure uh, and this type, and we think it'll take so long, but presumably, you know, the, how long it will last is something we progressively assess. And, and when we say the life cycle, really, we mean from expiration to when we have pumped uh, enough gas to say economically, there's no longer enough gas here to justify all the operations costs. But I, I, I want to uh, spend a bit of time on each one of those. Let's take one at a time. What kind of agreements, therefore, do governments and uh, exploration companies enter into? What would be the salient uh, clauses that govern gas exploration agreements? We, we can come later to the production and others. Right. So unlike mining agreements, which tend to be separated from exploration and then into development and production, oil and gas agreements tend to cover both in one fell swoop. The reason for that is the investor for exploration wants to be assured that if they do make a discovery, they're the first and only one with the right to produce it. Now, as you can imagine, that introduces complications. But as you quite rightly identified, at the beginning, you don't know what you will find, how big it will be, how long it can produce, how commercial it can be. So how do you do an agreement that covers all those uncertainties at the outset? So the agreement actually tries to put in place mechanisms that would address the size of the discovery with variation, the value and the cost of production with variation, and that leads sometimes to what might be called a progressive tax regime. So the, the share of production, which is typically through tax or royalty, you know, then is would, would might vary with the levels of production and the profitability of the of the activities itself. So it's quite complicated in putting agreements in place with these uncertainty upfront to cover this long timeline of activities with so many variables in the outcomes. And there are many use different mechanisms to, to cover that. And these agreements, the core part of it really is around these fiscal terms, these benefit sharing terms and how they're how they're structured. In natural gas, an important part is how you determine the actual market price and in oil, because as you know, these quantities can move anywhere in the world. So the share of revenue is a function of not only the volume produced, but the price at which it's sold. So, so contracts often put in place mechanisms for determining the price in advance so that there's some clarity as around how that revenue can be shared. Sure. So um, yeah. if I understand you, essentially, uh, you, right from the get-go, you have this, if you wish, generic template, which offers mm -hmm. not only the, the, the out, it outlines the terms, and then where there are quantums like uh, fiscal, uh, you know, tax, or for that matter, production. So there you work on a range, and you only right. confirm it once you've made the discovery, you have, uh, as you said, evaluated it, and we know what the volume and the quality 
is that will come out and therefore the likely price. Then you narrow it down to the specifics, but to give the explorer the comfort of security of tenure, these broad terms are agreed right up front. Absolutely. And that is correct. And you know, yeah, the, the, the lease, the agreement itself covers other things that you rightly pointed out. The term of the agreement, the air covered under the agreement, the rights and obligations of the operators, the obligations of the, the, the regulator, the government, or the, land, the lease owner. So those general things are in there in that template. And then there's these specific conditions. Oftentimes, some of these general terms are covered in law or regulations and not necessarily in the agreement. So it, it varies from Jurisdiction to jurisdiction. No, yeah, because each each country will take a view on what is the most optimal. Now, um, when we th we think about price, uh, my experience with exploration uh, projects is that they can take a very long time, and a lot can happen between uh, when a company first enters into an exploration agreement and when it pumps oil and uh, enters into an agreement with a buyer. How do we ensure some kind of uh, reliability and credibility of uh, assumption on price? How do we deal with the price factor? Sure. So there's always a risk involved, but the way it's treated like any investment, you want a rate of return on your invest an investment. And that is built into the one of the two traditional mechanisms used in oil and gas agreements. There's either a tax provision where you pay tax based on your profits. That means you will, you know what percentage of the profits you get you, you are to retain. So that allows you to work out a sense of percentages that you put into your, your modeling for your economics down the road, even as prices change. So that's, that's one mechanism to use. The other mechanism countries use is it's called cost recovery or production sharing. So a profit sharing rather. So companies invest in, and they guarantee the right to recover the cost of their investments in, before any excess revenue, any profits are split. So in a sense, in, variations price over time are factored in. And typically people understand the range you're working in and set the, the, the levels of taxation or profit share to consider that variability. And that has, that has worked over time because, but as, as we know, there are times when companies may be losing money or not making big profits during the life cycle of a, the life of a project because production goes on for decades in some of these fields. But other times, profits increase tremendously as prices increase tremendously. So it it you know over the time it, it it levels off it balances off to a sense and the contracts try to ensure that 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 variability in prices allows for both parties to come out above water that the operator doesn't doesn't lose too much money goes out of business. Right. So we that was the the space of agreements between the host country and uh, the developer. Now, when we move into the market, what do we mean by an offtake agreement? And, and what would we typically be looking at in an offtake agreement? And, and at what stage do we enter into one? Sure. So natural gas is unique, uh, or sorry, different from oil, in that natural gas isn't very easily movable. 
And if you want to develop a natural gas field, if it's a big field, it's a very costly exercise. It can be billions of dollars. So any investor needs to get financing for that. Any financier wants to make sure that he or she or they will get their money back. So they want to make sure that this natural gas that's being produced can be sold. And it can be sold to a creditworthy buyer. And that's where the offtake agreement comes into place. An offtake agreement is an agreement between a buyer and a seller, the producer and the buyer, that says, I will guarantee you from the producer side a certain supply in terms of volume at, at rate per day, for instance, over a certain period at a, at a given quality. And that is the agreement on the one side. On the other side, buyer then guarantees the producer that it will take that gas at that rate at that price formula for that duration. And, and, that is, and having that guarantee from the buyer, which is called the off-take agreement, then the investor, the, the producer can go to the financer and say, I have a credible buyer who's guaranteed they will take it. But that party has a power plant or an liquefied natural gas plant or a trading business that can take this gas. So that's the off-take agreement. It's an agreement by a buyer to buy a certain volume at a certain rate over a certain period of time at a certain agreed pricing formula. Yeah, this is this is important because what is coming clear is that you have this sequence of agreements. First, you 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 have this security of tenure uh, with the state, so that's something already uh, that gives comfort to the investor, and then. Uh, as you develop the project, build the plant and the costs rise, you then use the uh, offtake agreement to secure finance because now you have not only access to the resource through uh, the uh, development agreement, you also now have a commercial marketing arrangement through the offtake agreement. And between the two of them, investors then take a view that uh, at this rate, at this price, for this duration, based on this formula, it is worth putting money in this project. Because you know, Tony, uh, most of us think that the corporations fund themselves, that they just they bank and that they don't, they have a big pot of money. This idea, this appreciation that there's a whole sequence of interested parties and that at every gateway, each one of them is looking for insurance and that it is not the government only is very important, I think. Uh, but but we'd like to hear from you on, on, on how your experience with governments and their ability to appreciate this sequencing. Yeah, no, oil and gas companies tend to finance exploration themselves or a large part of it because exploration is high risk. So we'll use any retained profits from the operations to, to put more into exploration that is high risk. But they will certainly get project financing development from the capital markets and so so they, they so that is that is the, the reality and governments understand that and one of the um challenges governments especially governments that are not familiar with the operations face is understanding how to price the cost of this borrowing because in these agreements companies who invest also are entitled to recover the costs they put and that cost can include financing and Oftentimes, companies use the parent company because they will register a local company for this agreement with very little or no asset base. And then depend on the parent company to raise capital at their 
you know, based on their balance sheet and their credit rating. So then they will pay back their parent company at an agreed interest rate. You know, governments are, are, are sometimes companies in, might inflate this interest rate. So they want to understand the, the whole financial cycle. You know, it's important for that transparency because they need to have that trust between parties. So you're absolutely right, Sheila. Companies don't use their own money for all of this. And companies, and I tell people all the time, I tell my friends all the time, oil and gas is really financial undertaking. What we see and do are really the operations that we put in place to make money work and create value out of money. You know, so the, the, we, we find a resource, we come up with a plan to develop it, we find a market for it, and then we raise capital. And without our capital, nothing moves. You know, yeah. so so and I think governments understand that well, and they understand the need to make sure that projects are credit worthy, otherwise they don't get investors. True. So my guess is that uh, one of the important things and 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 the the if, if you wish provisions that need to be sequenced throughout the development agreement. Uh, the funding agreement, but also the uh, as in repayment agreement, and then uh, the uptake agreement is the period. How do we ensure that they are in sync? That, that you know you get finance for what you need. You have an uptake uh, uptake agreement for a certain duration, and that everybody is comfortable that they are not going to be found wanting uh, midway into the project. Sure. So one thing I neglected to say earlier, Sheila, and I should correct it, is that when upfront you have a production sharing agreement or license to produce that covers the whole life cycle, when you make a discovery and declare commerciality, which you have to do for gas projects after you've appraised it, you declare commerciality, then you, the, the, the operator is obligated, obliged to present a development plan. And that development plan considers all the activities all the cash flows and all the production shares. And that is where the detail comes around how we got the right financial model. So that is where you get some more certainty, Sheila, because now you know, have a better hand of how much reserves are under the ground, what rate it will reduce at, what the market might be and the price. So the, certainty, the uncertainty at the beginning is removed and presented during the development planning process. Yeah, so, so that so that helps with with that uncertainty. Yeah, you know, so so this is what we would call a bankable feasibility study because it it, it provides all the necessary, uh, if you wish, uh, economic modeling data, geo uh, technical data, but also the engineering uh, plans and and the costings, and and, and, and design of the plans and so on. Absolutely. Yeah. So. I mean, this is funded. If you are a cynic, you're going to say this is funded by the developer. Sure, they're going to add a bit of fat here because this is the tool I'm also going to use to negotiate with them in terms of uh, not so much production sharing, but I guess in terms of the cost uh, and, and therefore the, the tax. How do governments make sure that they can independently verify these project documents and the assumptions and the estimates made by the developer. Sure. Well, see, here's something that, you know, you, you, you're right, that the investors are the ones who can say they are bringing the funding to it. But in truth and in fact, they will not be able to bring that funding unless they have two things that the government must give them. 
they must have rights to produce the, 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 the natural gas or the oil. And, and that's important. And they must have access to it. Right? So they and, and, and the right to produce it. So the government gives them two things, a license to access it and the right to produce and sell it. Those are important inputs the government has. So yes, the, the government, the companies are do put in place that mechanism and need that, and governments see that part of it. So, so that is the, the piece that I think um, come, give the government the, the right then to put in place the mechanisms by which it sees what is being done is done in a way it requires to do the oversight they need. So in contracts, governments often have what, they, what are called production sharing agreements, right? And the government may have to its state company have an equity share be part of that, that uh, operation. But the government also has either in a, in a contract or in the law, the right to assess the costs. Because remember, that produced oil and natural gas is what is then used to pay for the supply of goods and services and to pay back the banks. So the government is, is actually, the oil and gas in the ground is what finally pays for it. So although the investor raises the capital upfront, it is recovered from the sale of the oil and gas. And the government says, hang on, I am paying for this. And you're recovering the cost. I need to be ensured that what you're recovering is in fact what you spent. So agreements have mechanisms for cost auditing, for governments to review contracts, procurement, to review the procurement procedures to make sure that this is market value they're getting and to look at the invoices they get and to examine whether the equipment bought and the work done have been done. So government has the right to access records and facilities to inspect and validate costs that are asked for. Similarly, government can ask for, and some do, sales agreements. And governments also track the actual movement of the product to say, you, you, you promised, you, you said to me, so let's this market. And it went to that market, that's fine. It moved to a different market. What is that in terms of pricing? And oftentimes that happens in you know where companies move to different markets because they're trading, and governments may or may not get the benefit of a higher price. So there may be mechanisms to, to do what sometimes referred to as transfer pricing. So governments have different levels of contracts to get assurance around the revenue that's supported is in fact what's received, and the costs that are reported are in fact what have been spent. And those can be built into the contracts and into the operating agreements that the companies have with the with their partners, or one of whom might be a state company. Sure. So really, what you're saying is, uh, first you start with the agreements, uh, mm -hmm. just the understanding of the industry enough to make sure that the agreement speaks to the this not just the particular deposit, but the life cycle of the the project. But also the market structure and 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 for that matter the the strategies of a particular company. But more than that, having put the agreements, the the management, the oversight, the implementation of the agreements is just as important, uh, because 
even if you have the agreements, the discretion, for instance, to, to move the product to one market might be the difference between whether the, a company is only marginally profitable or significantly profitable, which means then the, the benefit sharing might need to be revisited. And then, of course, the auditing of the product itself. So the ability then of governments, not just to enter into agreements, but to uh, administer and monitor them to make sure nothing materially changes that tills the benefit in favor of uh, the developer is, is an important factor, isn't it, Tony? Sheila, you're absolutely right. Laws and contracts are necessary, but they're far, far from sufficient. You need to have very capable, empowered regulators who provide oversight. But as importantly, and more importantly, and it's especially in countries like ours in the developing world, those regulators must be accountable. Because as you know, the resources belong to the people. And as you know, in countries like ours, we often have ministers or people in charge of regulators who are very powerful and who can influence how decisions are made in spite of existing laws and regulations. Without some transparency and accountability in the decision-making, countries can lose a lot of benefit that should accrue to them. So in, in the sense, for instance, that a company may have an obligation to provide information on cost or revenue, and the regulator disagrees, what might be the dispute solution mechanism for, for dispute resolution? In some cases, it's just the minister saying it. Now, if the minister's decision-making isn't transparent and consistent, that can lead to issues around, you know, governance that make people to think things aren't right. So the whole, so the need for competent and empowered regulators, and by that I mean they have the right tools in place, the right legislation, the right power to do what they need to do, and accountability of what they do. Not only what they do, but how they do it. You know, often think about confidentiality and agreements. Failing to recognize that these are the people's resources. And unless and until they can be guaranteed that decisions are made in their interest and in the right way, you know, there'll always be, be suspicion and 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 of sometimes even worse outcomes. So absolutely, you're absolutely right. Laws and regulations, contracts are necessary, but far from sufficient. You do need you do need strong, capable, and accountable regulators, really tools to do their jobs. Yeah, it, it's it's funny, and I'm uh, you should say that, and I'm glad you do it because we've been talking here about governments, but of course, uh, governments uh, mean different things. They mean political parties that are formed an administrative, uh, if you wish, framework for a particular period of tenure, and that political party has its own interest, but it also within the party. You have ambitious people uh, who, for whatever reason, may take a different view. Uh, and if they are empowered to exercise those discretions, it doesn't say that they will exercise them in the interest of the government, much less the party, much less the state. It can just be at personal level. And so I think you make a very important point that the governance as in oversight checks and balances to exclude special interests in these uh, agreements are, are, are probably more important than anything else because otherwise you could have all the laws and 
you know, you could just have them uh, hijacked. So I, I appreciate that very much. Let me ask you... Uh, Before you go on, Sheila, there's another part of that discussion that we tend to miss. You know, we you think of a government, as you rightly said, as, as, as political parties, but we also know that they're the technocratic arm of government, the public servants, to do their jobs. And one of the things we, we countries like ours have suffered from is since the commodity prices collapsed in the 80s, Governments have been forced to cut back on civil service on, on public services. And a big factor of that is the, the, the ruin payment and salaries and benefits of public servants. And the quality of people who oversee these industries is compromised by the lack of ability to pay them competitive wages. So we have we have a situation in the developing world where public servants aren't well compensated and they're being asked to do difficult work. Hmm? with very little resources, a limited amount of people. And that is a challenge that countries face. Unless we get the right people in those jobs, politicians who have their own interests as you identified have an easier time doing it because the checks and balances of service systems go away. That's extraordinary because really what, what you're saying is on the one hand, governments go to this great length to design laws and, and, and then hold um companies to account, but then they fail to cross the finish line by investing in the uh, paying the right people who will then have a vested interest and be motivated to do the job without looking over their shoulder. And that that could yep. be the difference between whether a, a country benefits or not. Uh, I have one last question for you, Tony, and yep. it has to do with this notion of uh, an operator's agreement. What is an operator's agreement then and, and how common is it in the area of uh, guest development projects? Sure. So many times, and quite often, in fact, it's more the norm than not. Um, when companies go into risky, high capital ventures, like a big gas field development, they tend to do so in ventures with other parties. And in some cases, countries, governments even insist on joint ventures because they allow for parties who are more cognizant, more experienced to, to manage the party who is chosen. Because the companies, the joint venture partners, select from amongst them one party who will be the operator, who will manage the day-to-day -day activities of the, of, the, of the license, under the license and agreement. And that, that party then uses its expertise, its knowledge, its skills. But the other parties provide oversight, advice, guidance. So some parties may have some special capability to bring that to the, to the dance, but there's one operator. What the parties agree to, and the parties may involve the state company in some cases, what the parties agree to is this joint operating agreement. And basically that gives guidance and provides oversight to the operator. It tells the, it, it says for instance, to the operator, this is the level of expenditure we plan to do this year. This is what you can approve and do without referring to us. Above a certain hurdle, you must get some kind of approval from us. So the joint operating agreement puts in place mechanisms for designing work programs and approving them, designing projects and approving them, designing budgets and approving them. But even within budgets, there are times when companies need to get authority to spend money. So you may have a budget for a $10 billion project over five years. Every year you need to have an annual expenditure. Every expenditure may have different parts of the project like engineering or construction. So depending on its size, they may thresholds for what are called authorities for expenditure. So the joint agreement 
determines when companies need to come back to their partners, when operating to come back to its partner to authorize an expenditure. Because of course, each company has to manage its own cash flow. So it's not a simple thing of saying, okay, you already joined it to operate, you just go ahead and do what you need to do. So the JOA provides some kind of operational oversight and certainty. And it puts in importantly mechanisms for procurement to make sure you get best market value for the service you procure. So there's accounting procedures, so there can be oversight and, and audits on what is done. And then, of course, there are mechanisms for sharing the production, who gets what, when. So it's all the things that, so the operator is the parties chosen from among the joint venture partners who does the day-to-day operations. The agreement puts in place the mechanisms where the decisions are made and how reporting and accounting is done to the other parties and how they get a chance to intervene and provide guidance or oversight. Yeah, so really it's, it's the uh, nominated manager uh, of operations who does it on terms pre-agreed uh, with the other partners and with the oversight collectively of the other partners. Well, uh, Tony, uh, thank you very much once again. That was very insightful. I appreciate your taking the time to join the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's always a pleasure, Sheila. Thank you for having me again and stay well, my friend. Thank you.